Welcome to Jammin' with Jason Mefford, a show where we discuss topics relevant to chief audit executives and professionals in audit, risk, and compliance. We discuss the technical and soft skills needed to navigate the minefields of organizations. You hear best practices and practical advice for helping you advance your career, and we'll even talk about music, mindfulness, and psychology, because we can. So sit back and relax while you listen to the number one podcast in the world for internal auditors, unscripted and unedited. Hey, uh, I am very, very honored today to have Tim Leach with me. And I'm telling you, if you if you don't already know who Tim Leach is, then shame on you. Because if you've been in this industry for any amount of time, you should know who he is. And um, I wanted to bring Tim on today, you know, and kind of introduce him a little bit. He has been around uh, the industry for a long time. And one of the reasons that I love Tim and wanted to talk to him is we both like the word contrarians, <laughs> or we are often kind of viewed as contrarians. And I love the message that Tim brings and that he shares with people. And I'm hoping, you know, as we go through and talk today, because there's a few things that I wanted to make sure that we talked about, that it will help many of you kind of understand and solidify and gel some of these things that people like Tim have been talking about for 30 plus years, but people still aren't getting it. Okay, so Tim, welcome, my friend. I am, uh, I'm actually very honored as well to have you with me. So how you doing, man? Well, thank, thanks for having me, and I, I appreciate you uh, reaching out to find out about my, quote, contrarian uh, <laughs> views. Well, it's, it's, uh, it, I was going to say it's funny because there's, there's a few of us in the industry, you know, we were talking before about people like Norman, too, where it's, we say what's on our mind and what we think people need to hear, but it often doesn't toe the party line, if you will. And so, you know, people that don't, you know, preach the religion or toe the party line sometimes kind of get pushed off to the side. And, but, but the message that you have, you know, cause you, you talk a lot about objective centric. And so, you know, I wanted to kind of get in and, you know, cause you've also had enough time in your career that you've seen all of the history in the back and the forth. Um, but maybe let's kind of start off talking a little bit about, you know, what is an objective centric approach? And I know you said before that sometimes talking about the other four centric approaches, because there's kind of five approaches, helps people really kind of understand what the difference is with objective, taking an objective centric approach versus some of these other approaches. Yeah, I, I think the notion of, uh, I'm happy to explain the notion of objective centric, but also, you know, introduce the others. But it's fair to say that my entire career ha has been focused on convincing the world that organizations, both public and private sector, would be better off if they aspired to strong first line, objective centric assurance that integrates all of the efforts of the first, second, third, 
And in the framework we promote, we consider senior executives to be the fourth line and the board of directors to be the fifth line. Mm -hmm. So I have actively, if you were to Google five lines of assurance, you'd find all kinds of articles from Tim Leach promoting five lines of assurance. But at a 30,000 foot level, my whole career has been defined by the belief that organizations would run more effectively and uh, be better for stakeholders, including shareholders, if all of the lines would coordinate their efforts around the most important objectives that the entity needs to achieve. Mm -hmm. And that has been the, the guiding principle, if you will, from 1985 on when we launched control self-assessment at Gulf Canada. Um, so it's not just about objective-centric. The reason I am so big on objective set centric is if you want, uh, you believe that management is responsible for managing risk. I've always just said, how can you not believe that management should be able to assess whether their current choices right now are any good or not? So it's kind of part of the whole management process, yeah, right? So, you know, very early on, I would, uh, you know, I would sometimes make jokes at, at large conferences. And I, I had clients that, that I would say to them, look, you know, I don't mean this in an offensive way, but the reality is the more and the better audits you do, the less management thinks they need to learn how to do an assessment of their own situation. Mm -hmm. somebody that you're going to come along and do it for them and you're going to tell management the parts you don't like and, and as long as you're good with a weak first line approach to risk management that's what traditional auditing does is it, it, it assumes it literally assumes management has not done an assessment otherwise the first question you would always ask is we're here to audit topic x We've decided it's worth $100,000 internal audit. Fair enough. Wouldn't you think management would have done a self-assessment if, if it's that important to the company that audit's going to spend resources and to come in and look at it. at it? Yeah, well, and it's interesting because as you said it that way too, it's almost, because I'm always interested in the psychology and the human behavior behind it, right? Is that... You know, and the IA has their three lines of defense. Now it's a three lines model, whatever, blah, 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 right? That that actually internal audit subconsciously would probably prefer a weaker first line because it gives us a reason to have a job, right? Well, in the early days when we were promoting the mantra of control risk self-assessment, which is fundamentally a strong first line model, um, we would have old guard internal auditors that would literally get up right in the middle of the presentation and say, this is nothing to do with, why would I teach management how to do that? What will there be for us to do? And I said, oh my God, these are people that are in chief internal audit positions that, that are, are, are saying they actually prefer management to be unaware mm -hmm. so that they'd have plenty of findings. Sounds I, pretty, I mean, it sounds pretty silly making, to say, but, it, but that's what they're saying, right? I wasn't, I'm not making the story up. It, it, it happened at IIA conferences and 
um, it took quite a lot of convincing uh, in the early 90s to convince the IIA that teaching management how to better manage risks to their most important objectives should really be seen as a core part of internal audits job. Mm -hmm. It's not seen as a core part of most internal audit jobs. And, and so that's what we proposed at, at, at Gulf Canada and CEO bought into it and, and hundreds of clients around the world that I've worked with since I went into public practice in uh, way back in, um, I guess, 1987, I, I came and set up the control and risk management services practice for Coopers and Librand in Toronto. And uh, that practice was a mix of forensic accounting, control risk, self-assessment, fraud vulnerability ethics, and but all of it's it's on that whole. You know, the IIA took a position for quite a while. They set up the CCSA certification mm-hmm. and actually did champion for a while, but never really got any support, and that designation's largely gone. Well, it is and, gone now. They're not offering it anymore. Yeah, and, and what's what's been replaced by is the CRMA, but the CRMA doesn't teach them. If you go in and management is not trained, not capable, and isn't doing self-assessments of their own, you should give them a D report on the quality of their risk management framework. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, how can you consider a risk management framework to be truly effective if management receives no training how to identify risks, is not expected to regularly identify and actually write down what are the risks to their most important objectives, and doesn't know how to line up risk treatments with those? <clears throat> how can you consider a risk framework effective if that's the case? And the reality is, is if you look at the IIA materials and you look at their most recent guidance on how to assess the effectiveness, they, they do propose an, a maturity scale. Go and read the maturity scale and you will realize that level four and five actually do say, hey, these are scenarios where management actually knows how to assess risk <laughs> and is doing it. So that's, that's, you know, level five is called optimized in that framework. So when the IIA put that out, I said to them, well, help me out here. I'm a simple guy. Does that mean if you're at level one and two, you have an ineffective control framework? Can you have an in, a truly effective framework that it is, that is at the lowest level of maturity if it's in a high change rate environment. Nowhere in that guidance does it say, so it says, okay, let's forget about whether it's effective or not. Let's just report whether it's what level of maturity. And I said, no, 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 no. If I'm on the board of directors, I want to know, say we're level two, is level two effective or ineffective? Telling me Uh, that I'm at level two out of five doesn't help me. No, and that's that's one of the problems that maturity models have in general, usually is again, it's like, well, is one okay or is it not okay? And, is five and, what we should aspire to? 
or not. And and again, so they're they're so nebulous in that way that that it doesn't it doesn't ever get back to the effectiveness, like you said. Well, and if you read the guidance, it says big motherhood things like everybody should tailor their program for their unique search circumstances. But make no mistake, standard 2120 says internal auditors should report on the effectiveness of the risk management process. It doesn't say internal auditors should report what level of the maturity we're at. <laughs> That's not what it says. Yeah. So you're really side-slipping the fundamental requirement in the standard by saying you don't have to actually say whether it's effective or ineffective or appropriate or inappropriate. All you have to do is say it's a two and a half out of five and show them on the little sliding scale how that works. <laughs> well, but even the two and a half out of five, it's like, you know, again, it's like, 2.7 versus 2.8. No, it's a five-step scale. It's one, two, yeah, three, but, four, you five. Know, but, I, I like yeah. to give them credit where credit's due. And levels four and five are actually describing stronger and stronger first-line risk management. Yep. So implicitly, they are saying, except they never actually said four and five is better. They just <laughs> said that it's that it's more mature. So, so, and I, you know, I, I'm not talking out of school. I write these comments directly to the IIA when I read exposure drafts and I regularly pound on these principles when I'm talking. Uh, I correspond, I send my posts all the time to this year's global chair, Janitha John, who uh, did the working group uh, chair of the three, the new three lines model. Yep. And uh, the three lines model is the closest thing yet that the IIA has produced that says the first line should actually assess and report. Yeah. But they, they said assess and report on risk. And I wrote them and said, I really wish you'd said certainty of achieving objectives. Well, because that's, that's the point where you and I, you know, agree so much on this is that everybody just wants to use the word risk without really realizing what we're trying to do when we're managing risk, which goes back to that uncertainty of objectives, right? Yeah, and, and Norman Marx has, has been uh, banging that gong. We really have not seen the IIA come out with any clarity and suggest that internal auditors should actually articulate and write down during the auditing planning process, just what are the most important objectives of the corporation. And most recently I, I wrote a blog post because they just issued a new way of doing assurance universes. It, they didn't make propose sense. that it, it start with the most important objectives. No. They said they're gonna use risk categories. Yeah, well, and which is why, you know, again, I think maybe let's kind of take us back to these five different centric approaches because I think this is gonna hopefully help people. Because same thing when I when I read that document that you're referring to, yeah, there was some nice talk about about objectives in there a little bit from a risk standpoint, but then it's just focusing on the risks, not tying back to objectives, but it's still going right back to a process level audit universe, and there's no linkage between the two. So so let's kind of go through because you usually teach people and talk about five different centric kind of focused approaches. So let's kind of go through those, just talk a little bit about each one so people can really kind of understand the difference 
with what objective centric really means? Sure, I think it's a you know foundation building block. Uh, for the last 25 years, when I run training courses, I I always include a module on on so that the people in the class get the idea of the different ways you can approach the task of giving assurance. So the five methods, very simply, are the oldest is compliance centric. An organization writes rules, writes policies. Uh, even back in the old days when I, I used to get an audit program to go out and audit a, a, a refinery, there would be a whole set of things, thou shalt do X. Okay, mm -hmm. let's go audit whether they're doing X. Mm -hmm. Well, who decided they should do X? Well, there's a policy that says they should do X. Fair enough. So that was the oldest form of auditing is you would go out and you'd set of rules that somebody had decided in their wisdom were important to do and the auditors would would verify that those rules were being followed so that's what i call compliance centric um process centric was when when i joined coopers and librand in 1979 to become an external auditor coopers and librand taught process centric auditing they, they would taught, taught you to study the revenue cycle, the disbursement cycle. Uh, they had all different ones that, that they would consider processes and you would work your way through the process, flow chart it, and you would identify what you called key controls in the process. And so that was the earliest form. But the notion was is that no matter what you're doing. So, you know, in, in your house at home, you have a process to acquire food. You can think of that as a process, right? Yep. You could flow chart it. How do we decide what we want to eat next week? Mm -hmm. What are the steps? And, and you could flow chart that. And you could then decide, are there flaws in the process? So, but the emphasis was on documenting the process. And then risk-centric, which has come into vogue uh, the IIA uses the words risk-centric uh, regularly and has for the last 15, 20 years. The idea was, is we can be more than compliance police. We should, we should look at the biggest risk to the company. However, the process used to decide what are the biggest risks usually started in the audit room mm -hmm. with a bunch of auditors sitting around saying, what do we think are the biggest risks? Mm -hmm. The process that they used to decide that rarely started by saying, first, let's agree what the company's biggest and most important objectives are. It just didn't. Yep. So that's risk-centric. Risk-centric is you go in a room and you ask a bunch of people in the room, what do you see as the biggest risks to the company, to the department, to the project? People will make up in their own mind what they think the objectives are, and they'll start telling you what they think risks are. Mm -hmm. But it often does not start by saying, before you answer that, let's write down what are the 10 most important objectives that must be accomplished by the company, the department, the subsidiary. It, does, it rarely does that. No. So, so that's risk-centric. And it's done in all different ways, but uh, risk registers are the purest form where you're asking people this question, what do you see as the biggest risks? And you're parking them all in, quote, a register. 
and then you're putting red, ambers, and greens, and you're doing likelihood and consequences. But rarely is there an answer to which objectives are most, quote, at risk of not being achieved as a result uh, of the way we're managing the risks to an objective. And so that's risk-centric. Control-centric, a lot of people haven't had much experience with, but it's, it's actually evaluating your controls against an accepted control model. And Canada built one in the 80s called the Criteria of Control, COCO for short. Mm -hmm. um, United States came along with the first COSO internal control financial reporting framework. I, don't correct me if I'm wrong. I'm thinking it was around 2003. Um, was when COSO, let me think. Well, they did the Canada original one in the 90s. Yeah, I think they, they did the original COSO in 92. Well, there was did an update. There. Yeah, and they, then, but then they, they did the update with, was it two? Yeah, it was like 2003 or something. Yeah, they treat the, the history of COSO was Treadway Commission went and studied what went wrong. One of the Treadway Commission's findings was that nobody agreed what the words internal control meant. Um, so Treadway became, the sponsors of Treadway are in fact the founding members of COSO. So Treadway morphed into COSO and COSO then turned out the very first effort, which in my mind was significantly less useful than the Canadian four category 20 element model. The first effort at COSO was a five category. And a lot of people don't know that the actual exposure draft of the first COSO was a, a nine category model that was genius. The authors were Coopers and Librand and it actually did say objectives were the most important category. <laughs> oh, what we have lost to history. Yeah. In between, and I, I've written about this at length, like I have all of the details like with the quotes. And so the original exposure draft of COSO actually said you should have objectives and you should measure whether you're achieving them. The final five category framework that was released around whatever that date was, 202, 203, all gone. Huh. So. We, we went back to old speak with words like control environment and, and communication, which was vague. It didn't say you should measure anything. It just said you should communicate stuff. So, so, but if you go back and you look at the exposure draft, I was so excited about that exposure draft. I thought it was genuine breakthrough thinking. And it got hammered back into audit speak by the time the final product got released. But um, so COSO came out with a five category and the elements you actually had to try and figure out yourself that they, they were kind of written, but they weren't nice and crisp and clear. Like the Canadian one was a four category, 20 criteria. Mm -hmm. COSO was five categories, no debate, no debate that. But what were the sub-elements of those five categories? It was kind of vague and I made them up. So I actually converted it into a, um, probably about a 70 or 80 element model under the five categories. So that's what I call control centric. 
you're taking a, a framework that somebody says is good, but we can look at things like the Malcolm Baldridge quality framework. We can look at uh, other models that even COVID uh, is in essence, a control centric framework. It's saying you should be doing this These bunch things. of stuff. So anybody that writes a framework that says, you will look good if you do these things. So now when they updated the COZO framework, they did actually turn it into a 20 category. Yeah. So it's, it's, still it's much more like COCO now. But now it's got principles. So the principles yeah. are the sub elements. And uh, so that's control criteria. Um, so if you were to use that, you would actually describe to your audit committee how you look or don't look like the model that you're using as the framework to report against. So you'd say, uh, do, do we measure up against? So Sarbanes actually actually requires an opinion against the COSO internal control framework. Mm -hmm. Now, most, most auditors skip that step and never really give you one, but it, it literally says in the words that they're looking for an opinion against a suitable framework. Right. They define what a suitable framework <clears throat> is, but everybody used COSO. They said you could use the Canadian framework or well, the framework, but yeah, because in, in one, I think, paper one letter back from somebody at the SEC, they said, well, COSO is an example of one of them, like we mean. And everybody's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, but you can use any of them. Well, and the reality is, is you know, the 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 big four accounting firms are are U.S. centric, and the uh, requirement for Sarbanes Oxley to report an opinion against a control framework um, required all of the largest companies in the world that access the U.S. securities markets for capital mm -hmm. to have opinions whether they are or not in accordance with COSO first from the CEO and CFO, and then independently from the external auditor. So that's a control criteria model. Objective centric says, let's start by agreeing what are the organizations or the department or the subsidiaries top most important value creation objectives. These are the things that are gonna make us great, drive us forward. And what are the most important value preservation? Value preservation, not going to make you great, but if you don't do them well, it'll take you into the ditch and destroy your value of your company and your shareholders. So nobody's going to ever uh, win the company of the year because they publish fabulous financial statements. <laughs> but if they publish materially wrong financial statements, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. And, yeah. and the same goes with data security. You lose all your customers social security numbers and credit card numbers and all their personal health data, it, it's bad. But, you know, protecting it wasn't going to make you a great hospital. <laughs> so, so that's what objective centric is. So we have encouraged people and on our website on the resources page, you can download a nice 15 page summary description of the five methods. And we encourage people to actually inventory what is your internal audit department? So I actually encourage audit committee chairman to ask the CAE, what percentage of these five methods do you use in doing your audit work? So I want you to take all of the hours that the audit department puts in 
which combination of these five methods are you using? And the reality in most audit shops, the one they use least or perhaps not at all is objective centric. Yeah, well, and I think, I think that's a, you know, I use a different term just because everybody had been talking about risk-based auditing. So I've been using the term risk-based internal auditing, but it's, it's really what you're talking about from the objective centric standpoint is what are the, what are the key objectives when we go from there, right? And everything that's on your audit plan, in my opinion, should probably come from there. But I think it's interesting how, how you said here too, that I wanna kind of bring up for people is, if you look at your audit plan, right? How much of it is compliance centric? How much of it is process centric? How much of it is control centric or risk centric? or really goes back to the objective. Because there, I mean, there is, the reality is we have to do some compliance things. We might have to do some control things just as an expectation. But to me, you know, really the process and risk even flows from the objective, right? Is that, is that if we really understand what our most important value creation or value preservation objectives are, then the risks and the processes that we need to look at are gonna flow from that. Yeah, and, and one of the things that we make very clear is that one of the fundamental flaws in risk registers is that they take risks that relate to many, many objectives and they plunk them into a register in isolation. Well, if you took your home and you said, uh, well, one of the risks is that occupants are unaware of that there's a fire, and then you put it in a risk register and you put high, mediums, and low on it, and uh, you decide you're, there's going to be a risk owner, but nobody in the house is responsible for safeguarding the health and safety of the occupants <laughs> against injury and death. So, so uh, you know, unfortunately, and, and one of the things that I've done, I've actually done this, I go in and to a tr traditional uh, company where the audit department has been doing 20, 30, 50, 100 audits a year, you can reverse engineer them. And you say, which objectives are implied in the work that was done on this audit? So you reverse engineer and you say, well, you wouldn't look at that you wouldn't look at that control if there wasn't an objective to do X, Y, Z. So, so you, you, <laughs> you, revert, you reverse the thing and you, then you, and what those tests have always shown me is very few internal audit departments have gone anywhere near the most important value creation objectives. Most of the audit plans are around value preservation and traditional type objectives. And when you say, I, you know, look, I've just finished reading the, the, the strategic plan that went to the board, show me what percentage of your internal audit plan next year is specific on those objectives. Most of the Often time, and when much. I've asked those, it's, yeah, it's even zero. Yeah, it can be. And, and you know, but, but my attitude is, you know, I've always promoted, uh, I've used the term supply driven. Most internal auditing done in the world is supply driven. The, the internal audit department locks up, decides what they're going to audit, runs it by the audit committee who are busy and don't really care. Uh, I, I've hardly, you know, in the hundreds of clients I've, I've, I've 
worked with over the years, the number of really insightful feedback from an audit committee or a, a senior leadership team on the audit plan is, is rarely much. And I don't blame them for that. They're busy people. So yep. they, they just sort of say, unless this is going to bother me a whole lot and inconvenience my staff, you go ahead and do those audits. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I encourage audit committees to become demand driven. I say, look, that audit department you've got cost 5 million bucks. Why don't you actually take the time as an audit committee to agree what it is you want them to do in terms of outcomes? Like, let's agree what those are. Mm -hmm. So before I try and assess the effectiveness of your $5 million internal audit department, I want the customers to tell me what is it they most want from the $5 million in terms of outcomes. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is if in fact, the, the reality is, is they only want the audit to department to pacify regulators and to pacify and, and keep the external auditors uh, okay. And they don't really expect the internal audit department will ever go anywhere near the most important risk. Fair enough. At least we've got it in black and white that says internal audit department is not to look at the most important objectives of the company. It's not their, your domain. If that's the decision, that's fine. Don't let the internal audit department saying continue saying they're auditing the top risks when they're not going anywhere near the top objectives. Well, and I think it's interesting the way you just put that is using supply driven and demand driven for your audit plans. I think it's a great way that hopefully that kind of hits people too is, you know, when you're just kind of picking and deciding what you think needs to be on the audit report or in the audit plan, you know, like we talked about, usually it's kind of an echo chamber in ourselves. We might ask input from a few people, but we just pretty much put down what we want to do. Audit committee rubber stamps it. That's supply driven. That's what we want to do. And actually getting the input and allowing the audit plan to be demand driven by what the executives and the board really want is a totally, totally different thing. Now I know, and that's what I encourage people to do as well. It's like, if you wanna be relevant, go figure out what actually makes you relevant. It's what the people need or want. But I get a lot of people that push back and go, but if, but if they're telling me what to do, then I'm no longer independent and objective. Well, they, if it in fact it is the board of directors that's telling what you what to do, I would I would counsel you not to be independent. They're paying your money. They're so paying the money. Decided I'm going to go do whatever I want, regardless of what any of my customers actually after they've been asked to think about it. But on our website on the resource page, there's there's a five step overview of objective centric and, and the first step is to agree what are the most important object, you know, value creation and value preservation objectives. And, and we want the leadership team to decide who who in management owns each of those objectives. What level of risk assessment rigor do we want to analyze this, the, the risk and the certainty of achieving those objectives. So that's what we call risk certainty assessment rigor. 
And do we want independent assurance from internal audit on the representation on the state of risk and certainty from internal audit? If the answer is no, so that step literally defines the entire work plan for the risk department, if there is one, mm -hmm. and for the internal audit department. However, it assumes that the company has accepted the business case for a strong first line, because it's saying the primary assessor reporter will be the management that own the objective. They will be the primary assessor reporters the risk department will help them do that and put some discipline over it and provide editorial comments on, on the product. And if it's decided that internal audit has a role as an independent assurance provider, it's not internal audit's job to say whether they like the controls or not. It's internal audit's job to say, has the representation been accurately described in terms of where the weaknesses are, yep. where the strengths are, and how that links to current performance being produced on those objectives. So it's a very simple diagram. It's five steps and it literally defines what a, a demand-driven process looks like and what an objective centric. So if you want strong first line, if you believe that strong first line uh, risk governance will be more nimble, more agile is a big word out there. Everybody wants to say we're agile. How can you be agile if we're waiting for the second and third line to report there might be big problems here? <laughs> we can't. <laughs> no, we can't. so, so yeah. if, if you're gonna wanna be an agile company, you better be a strong first line company. Well. How are you going to be a strong first line company? You're going to be a strong first line company if management believes they should are expected to be able to identify and measure the risks and think in a thoughtful way about how to respond to those risks to increase the certainty important objectives will be achieved. Yeah. Well, and I think it's you know I, I, I want to be conscious of, of time too because we try to keep the podcast we could i could talk to you for like two or three hours man but i but i wanted to to maybe hit on on one other thing here and then we we're going to probably have need to kind of wrap it up for today but you know i get i get a lot of people that you know when i'm talking about objective centric and i'm sure you've gotten this question over your whole career is you know, we talked about how a lot of times audits staying away from it, probably because they prefer to focus on what's comfortable for them, what they've done in the past, right? What the history has kind of been, instead of jumping in and looking at what really are the most important objectives in the organization. And I get a lot of people that say, well, I don't do that because I don't know what they are, right? So, so what what do you what do you say to people? I know you and you're laughing now, okay, right? <laughs> but when an auditor says, "Well, but I don't know what the objectives are, so how can I audit those objectives?" or when I find out what those objectives are, I don't know what to do with it. It's too high level, and I'm supposed to be auditing the processes, right? I hear this all the time. So how, well, how, that's, that's how do you why respond? We, we like to give the orientation on on the methodologies to the senior leadership team and, and the audit committee and risk committees. What do they want from internal audit? Do they want a bunch of compliance checking on low level processes or do they want opinions and, and input and, and help 
Do they want fundamentally, do they want internal audit to help management manage the certainty that the most important objectives will be achieved? And if the answer is yes, then audit has to radically change the way it's done in a large number of organizations today. Yep. If the answer is no, we just want to be able to say we have an audit department. I used to go in a $5 million audit budget a year and they, they'd be thinking about outsourcing it to Coopers and Librand. And I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd say, well, you know, what's, what's your budget? It's 5 million. And I, I'd say to them, well, um, I can do it for half. The, the client would sort of, what do you mean? How could you possibly say you haven't even, you don't even know what they're doing. And I said, it's not so much whether I know what they're doing. It's that I'm almost certain you haven't told them with any clarity what outcomes you want from them. And as long as the primary reason for their existence is to say we have an audit department that does audits, that write audit reports, I can do audits and I can write audit reports for $2.5 million. Yeah. You've been paying five for people doing audits and doing audit reports. How did you know you shouldn't have been paying 10? Because you don't know and have not told them what specific things you want an opinion on. So in the absence of clarity of what it is you want from that internal audit function, we could pay, look, if, if you're feeling you want even bigger savings, let's pare it down to a million five. That'll be a decent assignment for me. Mm -hmm. We'll do just as many audit reports as they were doing before. Mm -hmm. And, and you'll be able to say Cooperson Librand is now doing your audits and they're a world-class firm with incredibly deep resources that can be called to audit the most significant risks a company can face. So, uh, you know, it, it, I don't like to make fun of it, but the reality is, and, and when I have this discussion with audit committee chairs, who I often golf with and, and socialize with, they know it's true. So. But here's the rub. What's the biggest metric that internal audit departments use? Percentage of audit plan covered. Mm -hmm. Well, how bad an outcome statement is that? that? That's like measuring a salesman on the number and the quality of their sales calls, but with, without any clarity on how many sales do you want them to make? So. You, you know, one of the first things I do when I get called in to audit, uh, to do an assessment of the effectiveness of an audit department, I will spend the time and drive out of the, the senior leadership team and the board. What is it you want from the 5 million bucks you're spending? If, if you can define what it is you want, I can give you an idea of how many resources it will take to do it. However, if you say, I just want to be able to say we have an audit department, we have a chief audit executive, and we do audits, and the audits are reported to the leadership team and, and the board, pick a number and we'll all work to it. Mm -hmm. Because well, there's no intellectual integrity around how many resources you need unless there is clarity on the outcome sought. Ding, 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 right? And that, and that's the whole, you know, especially now. So anybody who's listening, that's ahead of audit someplace, did you just hear how easy Tim made it sound to get your, your, uh, your, your whole group outsourced and you out of a job? 
um, if you're not kind of answering that question is what, what does the board and the executives really expect from internal audit? Um, and, you, you know, again, this is, it's a, it's a difficult time for some people, uh, for some organizations, and they may choose to take the, hey, you know, Tim, come in, do it for 1.5 instead of five, right? And, and ultimately, it's, it's the company's prerogative on what to do. But I can tell you, if, if you've been doing a supply-driven audit plan, you're at risk. <laughs> you're at risk. Be careful now. It'll be called a risk-based supply-based <laughs> risk plan, <laughs> right? And, and and really, to be relevant, we have to understand what the objectives are of the organization, those top objectives, and if and 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 then start helping with them, right? Because if not, I mean, we're just checking the box. Somebody else can check the box. Um, much cheaper. In fact, today I was just reading an article about auditors is one of the jobs that the World Economic Forum expects to be outsourced to machines within about five or six years. Well, certainly if it's compliance centric or even control centric, mm -hmm. though, both of those methods are extremely amenable to artificial intelligence. Yep. Risk-based, uh, you can certainly use uh, the software that I built. You could uh, wire up key risk indicators and escalation triggers and all of those things. And all it would all be done by machines and set off alarms on dashboards. Yep. Um, all of that is possible. But, you know, what I believe is very difficult to do because it requires judgment on acceptability of certainty of achieving objectives is that um, uh, that that really if the audit department has been instructed by the leadership team and the board that they are to provide independent assurance on the reliability of information they get on objectives number two six nine 14 and 18 and they want medium level assurance on the reliability of those data sets, I think you can do a much more rational uh, approach in terms of uh, how many resources do I need to do that? And in the absence of any clarity on what it is the leadership and the board want, I, I, I mean, I'm speaking from experience. I, I've had clients that they were outsourcing uh, $250,000 to Deloitte. They would do eight audits a year. And then they would say in their annual report, we have an internal audit department. They are doing risk-based internal auditing and they're delivering five reports. They don't actually mention five because it sounds bad, but yeah, reports. Yeah, the reports to two that are going to the, the board and to the leadership team and management is taking appropriate actions as required. Well, that's fine, but you know, I'm 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 going into a client right now that that was outsourcing five audits a year. So what I'm saying to them is, is if you go with a strong first line, objective centric, we can cover far far more objectives for the amount of money you are spending on five audits because we're going to go. We're going to use training and facilitation as our primary vehicle to do this mm -hmm. with 
some quality assurance if it's felt to be worthwhile by the leadership team and or the board. So this is all about making it demand driven. Once, you know, uh, unfortunately, the vast majority of internal audit in the world is supply driven and it's extremely vulnerable to being outsourced right now in a tough environment where the regulator hasn't really defined with any clarity what they want in the you can argue that some of the better financial regulators have at least some idea of what they expect as outcomes from internal audit not usually very good but um the point is is to take the time clarify what outcomes you seek from whatever amount of money you're going to spend on the activity and then work to the outcome, resource it to the level of outcome. And if, if that number is too high, change the specifications and delete objective number four and seven and just go with clarity. There is no independent assurance on those objectives. Don't, don't pretend that five audits a year is going to really assure that the company has an effective risk and control framework. Yeah, it can't. It possibly can't. And, and, you know, and I see sometimes the, the stuff out of the IIA talking about benchmarking how big your audit department is against the other audit departments. Well, all of that is irrelevant if none of the departments have defined what it is they want from them in those companies. Yeah, benchmarks are another one that I just, I don't understand. It's, it's like little boys pulling out a tape measure, you know, and it's like, uh, okay. It doesn't well, make any sense. Is, is, is I, you know, back in my CNL days, which is now PwC, you go in and you say we can use our vast global resources and 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 compare how you're doing your internal auditing against the way other companies. But that's not helpful if it turns out the whole of the internal auditing sector hasn't been very effective and yeah. has not been measuring outcomes. It's been measuring inputs. So you got to get out of first, you got to get agreement. What outcomes do you seek from the investment in the function? And unfortunately, the IIA quality assurance review does not demand that as the first step of a QA review. And I believe unequivocally it should. So, you know, that that's key. And uh, so demand driven uh objective centric with the philosophy that strong first line is a goal those are my guiding principles and and i just slide through decade after decade with <laughs> my belief that those are things that are important but here's here's the rub nobody has debated with me that i'm wrong nobody's marshalling arguments in print no. saying oh you're far better with a weak first line second and third lines will catch all that bad things that are going on out there. Then, then you say, well, how did you decide how much second and third line you're gonna engage to compensate for the weak first line in a world that's changing every month? Well, no, and nobody's willing to debate you, Tim, cause you're right, <laughs> you know? And it's, and, and the problem is they're just not willing to accept it or come along with it. So. You know, that's why I love I'm, I'm trying to to help out and push. I haven't been doing it nearly as long as you have, but I'm going to keep pushing and keep being the contrarian for people to, you know, pull their head out of their ass and actually think about this in the right way 
and and realize that you know like you said most of these other centric approaches you can you can program the software to do it but you know if you're really going you know to to have the clarity and and do the things that require the human judgment and the actual human interaction right of actually being able to be intelligent emotionally with people and know how to use things like psychology and influence to actually develop relationships and work through some of this stuff. Yeah, the machines are going to take over. Yeah, and well, you know, where's the cognitive biases at work on the management side? And oh, can, can I yeah. sort of gently <laughs> expose some of them and, and, and get a better appreciation? But, you know, I, I don't like to be all negative. I have to give Kudos to Richard Chambers, CEO, president of the IA, nominated me and put me on his 10 thought leaders of the decade. And uh, the write-up, though, says every profession needs somebody like Tim that's <laughs> just continually harassing the, the, the profession that there's got to be better ways to do it. And I think as one of the earmarks or one of the hallmarks of being a professional should be relentlessly looking is there better ways to actually satisfy what our customers want and if the answer is well they haven't bothered to tell us well you better take the time and try and get it out of them because yeah. i'll tell you if your customer doesn't know exactly what it is they want you for you are very vulnerable to getting rid of yep well exactly Exactly. Well, Tim, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, love talking to you. So I'll probably have to have you back in the future as well. But I, I, I really appreciate, um, like I said at the beginning, you have been one of those people in the profession that's always been kind of, you know, pushing it and, and, and asking us how we can do things different. Uh, it's meant, meant a lot to me. I mean, again, in, in my development um, as well, kind of, <clears throat> you know, hearing what you've been saying and thinking about it and doing my own research and my own playing with it. But, you know, I keep coming back to the same thing where it's like, Tim, you're right, man. That's why I'm saying the same thing too. <laughs> so, so you, know. I, you know, I would encourage those of you that, that even if you only like some of the ideas, consider following me on LinkedIn. I've got a LinkedIn discussion group called objective centric risk and certainty management all my posts are there uh you become a member of it you can you can read uh, two years of uh radical thinking about it and a lot of my posts i'm i'm just as focused on the second line as i am on the third line and all of it though is promoting the the business case for strong first line objective centric demand driven assurance yep that's yep, the exactly. Theme. That's a theme. Well, Thanks I'll try to. I'll, I'll, I'll link up in the show notes for that. And, ju and just again, since this is usually audio, I'll put it in the show notes too. But what's the what's the website? The best website for people? Because I know you referred to the resources. Uh, well, that's www.riskoversightsolutions.com. Risk Oversight Solutions. All right. So go out and uh, download some of the stuff. Ask to join the LinkedIn group and uh, keep the discussion going. Uh, so Tim, thanks again, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. You have a good one. Thanks, you too. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Jamming with Jason. Keep on rocking in the audit world. Have a great rest of your day 
and I'll catch you later on the next show. If you'd like to earn continuing professional education for listening to today's episode, head on over to C-Risk Academy at ondemand.criskacademy.com. And that's C as in the letter C, riskacademy.com. Not only do you get a CPE certificate, but you also will have access to the video version of today's show. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of the individuals and not of their respective organizations.